last week we started a very short book of the Bible, Habakkuk. It was written by one of these guys called the Minor Prophets, if you've heard that term before. But he lived at a time in Judah where the country just wasn't doing so well spiritually. The leadership and the people had turned away from God. And because of that condition, Habakkuk lodges a complaint against God asking God why he hadn't responded to the sin that's taking place in the culture. Why hadn't God intervened in this nation that supposedly God loved and had raised up? But as we looked at this complaint, what we saw that last week was this very, very much of an honest and, and candor, this response that was just very candor with God. And he was real, he was honest. And I think one of the points we looked at last week is that God invites us to that intellectual honesty with himself. We're to come to him. He wants us to come to him with all of the issues that we have in life. But there were, God did respond to that first complaint. And I want to read that response again. Uh, Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, and I'll put it on the screen for you as well, or you can follow along in your Bibles. But look how it said, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar. They fly like an eagle, swift to devour." They all come for violence, all their faces forward. They gather captives like sand. At the kings they scoff, and at rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. And then they sweep by like the wind and go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. God responded. And he's saying, I plan to act. And he's telling this prophet that he's raising up the Chaldeans, a nation who's filled with violence, and they're going to sweep through the land. And it wasn't an answer that Habakkuk wanted. But this conversation as they go back and forth, I want to point out to you, while he didn't want it, it reveals something to us even in 2014. So here's what we want to do again today. As we walk through some more verses here, I just want to remind us that it reveals things, and sometimes about us, and some revelation also is given about God himself, how he responds in this nation to this nation and to Habakkuk. But let me just point out one truth. If you're taking notes in your bulletin, the first one I said it this way. A realization about God, that God can use evil to administer justice for his people and his children. See, we need to feel the tension of Habakkuk here. Because we also live in a time when sin and evil seems to be gathering strength. And we stop and pray for revival, for spiritual awakening. But here's the question, what if? 
God comes and answers that with an answer that seems contrary to what we desire. See, I, I think we all want God, even in this day, to clean up our nation morally. But what if he says no? I'm actually going to give you over to more evil. I'm going to allow more hardship so it displays my glory. Are we okay with that? And what if, he, what if God allows his people, his children, to experience greater hardship for his purposes? Is that okay? Is that okay? Let me give you another observation, number two. Really feeds off of one, but th- this. God is still in control. And he still reigns, even though evil rulers and nations exist. Folks, God is still sovereign. His providence is still working out. It's in full force, and evil still exists, even in our world. But let, let me look to this ant. Look at verses 5 and 6 again. Look how he responds to Habakkuk. Look among the nations and catch this phrase and see and Habakkuk wonder and be astounded. I'm going to do a work. I'm going to raise up people that are going to be evil, that are going to sweep through the land. And you go, okay. Isn't that an awkward response for Habakkuk? That evil is going to get worse? But I think for us, I I, I think we have to come and say this, that evil and sinful rulers exist because God allows it. He is still in control. He still reigns. He's sitting on the throne. See, we look at the world out there and the way it's headed, and we go, does God just disappear? That's basically what Habakkuk is asking. God, did you disappear? And I think we can look at it in 2014. You go, no, he's still here. But let me give you a third observation here. Habakkuk is bold still, asking hard things of God. But here's the sense that I get. He's asking, it comes from a desire for righteousness. See, as I step back and I read this and I go, he's coming boldly to God, but my sense, it's rooted in a righteous attitude for Habakkuk. I think he really was disturbed by the injustice that was going on in that country, the people that were turning away from God. I really believe that that was his motive. And as I pondered that, I go, 2014, as we listen to the blogs and even the Christian news and the the religious world, I had to stop and go, is that our motives? Is righteousness our motives of the day? And I, I couldn't help but wonder that our motives maybe are more mixed than Habakkuk. See, at times I think we pray that the United States would turn away from evil. 
but we pray to get back to the Christian roots. But is it possible in least, in part, that it's less about righteousness and it's more about comfort? See, we want an easy life for my family and the kids who grow up and our grandchildren. See, is our prayers there rooted in really wanting the kingdom of God to reign in this nation, in this world? Or is it comfort? Because if if we really want the rule of God to reign, it starts in our hearts as individuals and corporately in churches as well. That's the root, that's where it has to begin. Uh, Let me connect those thoughts with what I said last week. Last week I said this. Uh, Many times I see when people claim a faith with God that they're more concerned with the sin over there and, and in the world than they are concerned with the sin that's embedded in the churches and the lives of people today within the church. You know, we pray that the nation would turn back to God, but the fact remains, folks, for example, in marriages, that the same percentage as the world and within the body of Christ, the breakdown is identical. And you go, there's some inconsistency there. We, we pray for revival in the, in the politics of the country of today. And yet, when you look at the stats and the millennials, that 18 to 30 group, they're walking away from God by about 95% walk away from the church. And, and somehow we blame the world for that. But I go, I don't accept that answer. I think it's a flawed conclusion to say, to blame that our kids are walking away from the body of Christ, from Jesus, and they're leaving the church in droves, and we're just going to blame the world. I go, something is wrong with that answer. See, see, what is our motives? Is it really righteousness, the kingdom of God? Let me move forward, though, and look at Habakkuk's response to God's response. God says, I'm going to send this ugly nation. But look at verse verse 12 here. So he responds to God. O Lord, my God, my Holy One, you who are eternal, surely you do not plan to wipe us out. O Lord, our rock, you have sent these Babylonians to correct us, to punish us for many sins, but you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? Are we only fish to be caught and killed? Are we the only sea creatures that we have no leader? Must we be strung up on their hooks and caught in the nets while they rejoice and celebrate? Then they will worship their nets and burn incense in front of them. These nets are the gods who made us rich, they will claim. Will you let them get away with this forever? Will you succeed forever in their heartless conquests? Now I use the NLT here just because it it, it flows a little bit better here. So Habakkuk turns the original complaint. Understand the first complaint was Judah. He was complaining about the people of the Jews in, in Judah the southern kingdom. But you notice now, in this complaint, he really didn't like God's response. And I think he's saying this, wait a minute, God, 
You're overdoing it. Now, I, again, I, I pause and I can appreciate his honesty. I, I really do. He looked at God to answer his prayers. He's deeply honest with God. And I think, again, we must be able to go to God like that. Um, I heard a phrase last week or read a phrase last week is we tend to view God as fragile. And by the way, he's not, okay? But I, I got to go down a path here because in this verse 13, there is an application here that is so subtle, I think we miss it. See, he's questioning, he's not satisfied with God, that God is going to show justice by even bringing more destruction. But let me, again, look at those verses. Verse 13. Now, he's, again, he's speaking of, of the Chaldeans, Babylonians here. But you are pure and cannot stand the sight of evil. Will you wink at their treachery? Should you be silent while the wicked swallow up people more righteous than they? Habakkuk is conflicted here. He's just changed his tune. He acknowledges that you're sending them for reproof, for correction. But he doesn't like the idea that the more evil is going to take the place of the people of Judah. It's going to swallow them up. See, that swallow up, he's referring, that's again the Chaldeans. But here's what we need to catch. All of a sudden... Judah's not so bad anymore. You catch that? The Chaldeans are way worse than the people of Judah. See, he's informing God that the people, you catch the phrase, they're more righteous than these nasty people that you're going to send through the land. There's an application here for us. Number four, good people who love God can fall prey to relativism when it comes to sin and defining righteousness. Judah's tone changed. The sin of Judah was not now so bad after he got the answer. But when you push it to 2014... Can't we do that as well? The flesh and the human heart has this great capacity to begin to compare sins, and especially when it impacts us, we make certain sins not nearly so bad. We have this great ability to minimize our own sin and the point to finger at someone else's unrighteousness because they are worse than we are. And functionally, what we do is we create a rating system of sins. This one's the worst. This one's the next, kind of in the middle. And this one, God really is not concerned with that one. Don't we? Matter of fact, the word pedophile. Oh, so evil. But the withdrawing and withholding love from a spouse justified because of what they did to me 
Murder is so bad. Honoring our fathers and mothers, that's optional. Do you see how we do that? And do we realize that this rating system of sin and we compare which is more righteous and that's what Habakkuk was doing? Do we realize where it comes from? It was from Adam and Eve, folks. It's when they took the right to be like God and they took the right to decide what sins are really bad, what are not so bad, and what are okay. See, that attitude is, is rooted in the lie that Satan told Adam and Eve. You can be like God. And how do we do that? You determine what is good and what is evil and what is righteous and not so righteous. And Habakkuk is saying that we are just a little bit more righteous, God, than those Chaldeans. And don't we do that in 2014? And it's why we can look at the world and we look at their sin, we condemn their sin, but we fail to look at our own self-righteousness, our failure to love. And even when we walk through the scriptures, let me put up a verse on the screen, 1 John 4.20. We want to avoid verses like this. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We try to avoid these kind of verses. Let's just talk about grace. See, then we shout out the sin of the world and we bemoan how the culture is going down the tubes. And, and here's where a couple facts I just got to remind you of that the answer to the world and into our self-righteousness is Jesus. The world out there in all of their depravity, they need Jesus and the gospel, not some another moral politician. They need Jesus. And as us, if we know Christ, we need to be more like Jesus. And we need to be pursuing Christ. We need His Spirit to be embedded into our hearts to help us overcome our self-righteousness and to replace it with love and grace and wisdom and boldness to present Jesus to a dark world. So I propose that all of us, maybe, I, I know it's me, who claim to be a disciple of Christ, don't we struggle with sin being a little relative and some self-righteousness in it? Let me give you another one, though, here, truth. It fits with this one. Number five, just a reminder about God. God doesn't look at sin in relative terms. God has a bigger picture of what's going on. It really is a relational picture, and I think we forget that. But let me, let me just give you a scenario to, to kind of illustrate this. Imagine with me a moment that you, you grow up in a family, and all of us had a family somewhere along the line. Uh, but put yourself in a family. You have a couple brothers and sisters, and you know as kids that 
you actually disobey your parents once in a while? Did anybody not disobey their mom and dad? I know Dave was hiding from mom. All. <laughs> but we all act, we, we, we act like children, act like children. They disobey, they sin. But what if, what if mom and dad decide this? To relate to each of you based on what sins the child committed. For example, if you had an older brother who consistently would come home late and break the curfew. I had one of those, by the way. Uh, my older brother was that. And, and the parents would just choose to ignore the issue. Had the curfew, never said anything to that older brother. Ignored it. And as a younger child, a few years younger, you go, it's weird. And then you don't clean up your room. Ken, you're grounded for the next three weeks. And the brother keeps breaking curfew. Ken, you're grounded for the next three weeks because you didn't clean up your room. What are the parents communicating to you if they treat those actions as just fluid, relative? When it's say this, is that the parents are really saying this wrong, this sin, this disobedience is not so important. But this one is really bad. And you understand, as we, as children, we have a natural response. And you could probably fill in the blank for me. That's not fair. Isn't that what we would say? That's not fair. But the question, what does it say about the character of the parent? If a parent were to do that, and I think there have been parents out there that have done that. But if, if that's the normal way they function, what is the bottom line of that parent in, in terms of their character? And I would describe it this way. That parent does not understand love. Love is conditional. It's relative. It's fluid. It's not biblical love. But here's the deal. God the Father does not treat sin in a relative way. Why? Because he is love. And it's pure. And it's just. And his love is never based on a rating system as to what sin we do or don't do. Do you catch that? If we know Jesus, he loves us as his children because of the work of his son on the cross. He's not a fluid God that changes his love because of what sin we commit. Habakkuk didn't realize that he was actually making sin relative, fluid. Yes, the Chaldeans were exceedingly wicked, but listen, God loved Judah. 
And here's, I think, the challenge is we, we look at these historical examples in the Scripture, and we have kind of a faulty lens over as we read the Old Testament. I mean, just, just started Chronicles here this week. And we read the stories and we believe that, that God is punishing these people because of their sin, period. God is a punishing God. But I go, that's missing it. Yes, God is using discipline, correction. Why? Because he loves them. God doesn't just discipline to get rid of moral sin. It's always with the purpose of inviting them to return to him. And that's the lens that we have to put over the Old Testament. He was inviting Judah to return to him, to love him, to be with him, to put away their idols so that they would worship him. He wanted them to follow him. Listen, for, for Judah and for us, God would rather bless us. And he wanted to bless Judah. And God had chosen to bring the Messiah through the Jews, through Israel and Judah. And to be a blessing to mankind. But God needed to do something. He wanted to bring them back. And let me remind you, we read this last week, 2 Kings 21, just to give you a picture there. of, And it says this, I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab, and I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it, turning it upside down. He's cleaning. It's for a purpose, for his glory. He needed to do this because of his love for them. But for Habakkuk, he didn't quite catch that. The Chaldeans were really evil. Judah's not so bad. But God doesn't treat sin in a relative way. But it still runs in our hearts, as I think, on a regular basis. Now, just a side issue here. When, when we put a scale to sin, i got to point this out. At times, what it actually creates is a type of ball and chain for some people as well. And it's like this. If you, if you rate the sin that you've done as very bad, sometimes people go do this, I can't be forgiven. And you go, that's just not true. See, they look back and they go, how bad that I've sinned. I don't deserve to be forgiven. And God says, wrong, wrong, wrong. The death of my son can cover every sin, no matter how bad we think it is. See, God doesn't deal with us in terms of relevant terms. Why? Because he loves us. And sin is sin, and he can, and he can choose to use wicked people to confront unrighteous people so that they can see their own sin and bring them back to himself. And that's what's taking place here. So Habakkuk didn't hear what he wanted to hear. He lodges the complaint. But let me jump to chapter 2, the end of the complaint. Look at verse 1. i got to show you this. And I will climb up to my watchtower, and I'll stand at my guard post, and then I will wait and see what the Lord says and how he will answer my complaint. When, when you look at those words, can't you picture Habakkuk grabbing a stool Crossing his arms, 
okay, God, let's see how you answer now. Isn't that what he's doing? Life is supposed to be fair, God. You're supposed to be fair. Don't you care about us? But don't we do the same thing sometimes? Might this be true for us that we pull up the chair and we go, okay, God, I dare you. Give us more hard things in our lives. Now here's where we got to drill down just a little bit more here because I, I personally know people both in their relationship with God and it spills over in the people where events and circumstances, it is so deeply tied into this that God is unfair. And they ask God initially. But, it, but something happens and it, it really is generates, let me give you this truth, number six, to really dig just a second here. Number six, God wants us to become, Satan wants us to become victims to God in his circumstances. See, complete honesty with God like Habakkuk gets replaced by pushing God away. And a person can become a victim to what's gone on. Let me give you an example. On Monday down in Brainerd, I bumped into a young woman I hadn't seen for a while, and, and this young lady has not had an easy path in her marriage. There's been severe health issues for a child. Um, jobs for her husband have not been satisfying for him. They've not worked out well. Finances have been incredibly tough, and it's not because of their poor spending habits. It's because of all the bills from the doctors in the valleys of life. And the results is, as I was visiting with her and spending some time just talking, is that her husband, for years, he was viewed as this good Christian young man who had great spiritual potential. But for him, life has now become unfair. And he's slowly turning away from God. See, God hasn't come through for him in the right way, in a way that's fair. God hasn't answered his prayers in the way that he wanted it to, the way that he had hoped for. And what's happening is he's becoming a victim to God. But isn't that true? that at times we need to admit that we really would like to define what the right answer from God is. God, give it to us in the right way, how I want it. And the temptation, though, is not just to sit on the stool. Okay, God, will you answer me? The temptation is to turn around. Okay, God, I'm going to face away from you. And we turn our backs on God. And that's what's happening with this young man. You see, when he doesn't answer like we want, it leaves us in a place of insecurity, and it's not very comfortable. And we want comfort. We want security. We want safety. We want to know what's going to happen. 
don't we? So we work to control the outcomes that we want. And when that doesn't work, too often we'll say, I'm not going to ask you the hard questions, God. I'm just going to walk away from you. And we claim the right to be a victim. Now, in jumping ahead, let me make a statement here. Habakkuk never turned around on that stool. He kept facing God. He was honest. He kept his gaze on him, and we're going to see that. Matter of fact, next time, as we jump into the next few verses, what we're going to find is that actually God gives an answer to the question, what if God answers in a way that we don't like? That's where we've got to go to next. But for Habakkuk, life wasn't turning out like he wanted. And I listened to this sermon. Isn't it depressing? At <laughs> times. See, the, the, there's a challenge here. Because what he's going through, Habakkuk's going through, is real for us. But here's where i got to leave you with hope. And we got to quit here this morning. I want to point out where Habakkuk ends up just to leave us more on a little more positive note. Let me show you the last uh, three verses of the whole book in chapter 3. Look at where Habakkuk ends up. Even though the fig trees have blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines... Even though the olive crops fails and the fields lie empty and barren, even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empties, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. The sovereign Lord is my strength and he makes me as sure-footed as a deer, able to tread upon the heights. That's where Habakkuk ended. We got to figure out how he got to that place. Okay, that's next time. Can't do it today. Why don't you stand and let me, let's pray.